We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. The background noise that you're hearing is the ambient atmosphere that Christopher Bedford, my colleague, senior editor at The Federalist, um, is enjoying right now. He's in, he's in Florida because he's doing exactly what we want to talk about on this Thanksgiving-themed episode of Federalist Radio Hour. He's enjoying time with his friends and with his family. Chris, tell us where you are, first of all. <laughs> I'm, I'm in Naples, Florida, which is a, a, a bit of a scene change for me because I'm the kind of guy, I, I, we, I grew up celebrating Thanksgiving amongst foliage, fall leaves, occasionally snow, 50 miles north of Plymouth, uh, northwest of, of west, west of Plymouth, Massachusetts. And that's kind of just the classic New England feel. And it's what I associate with, uh, associated completely with Thanksgiving, but it's, for the last like eight or nine years, I've done it. Eight years or so, I've done every single Thanksgiving basically in Washington D.C. Maybe seven years hosting folks who worked at the Daily Caller, and then uh, and anyone else who was left behind, and then sometimes folks at the Federalist when I joined that company. Basically, anyone who didn't have a home for Thanksgiving didn't have a place to go. Uh, this year, two years of COVID and everything else, and then not having spent. Thanksgiving at the family for a long time. I, I gave that off to someone else in the group and said, your turn to host, which they stepped right up to. And I just blasted down here to do what we used to do with my dad and my mom and my uncles. And I just saw my grandparents in their, or in their early 90s. Uh, and it's, it's really good to be back with family. I've had Mary Eberstadt on a couple of times to talk about her book, which I think is one of the best in the last five years called Primal Screams. She's just a fantastic writer and makes a really important point. I remember asking her the first time we talked about something that is she, she talks about how sexual revo- the sexual revolution created identity politics. And when I was listening to her speak, I was like, well, we also have this thing in the millennial generation where we filter more and more people through uh, the system of higher education, which isolates you in many cases from your families. And we have normalized people leaving their communities. Um, and in many cases, like the case of Chris and myself and, and many others in our situation, uh, young professionals in urban areas, far away from your family. Um, when you go to college, you go to a city maybe or a, a community that's very different from your own. And we're taught that this is a good thing. And of course, it has its advantages. Um, but it also does keep people away from their families, I think, uh, in, a, in a way that humans maybe have never experienced before. And of course, we have all of this technology now to keep us together. Um, but Chris, do you think there's something to that? I know you've hosted a lot of your own young staffers and stuff at, at your apartment, or I mean, at your uh, home over the years for Thanksgiving dinners. But do you think we're, we are being isolated from families? Yeah, it's amazing. I, the amount of people who I know some, some of them, for because of international travel restrictions, but others uh, just the same, who can't get home. They can't leave because of work. They can't be with their family. Uh, one of my friends reached out to me in Washington D.C. and said, "Listen, my family's coming down. We've got more birds than we could possibly, possibly eat. So anyone who you come across who doesn't have a home, uh, send them my way." And it's been amazing how many folks I've been asking, "What are you doing for Thanksgiving?" And they'll say, "Up oh, nothing." Saying, one guy said, "I'm eating turkey at work." Another guy said, "I'm sitting in my apartment." And those guys, I just, I pointed towards our friend Ryan and said, why don't you go reach out to him? It's a great thing to do. But to your point about the, the intergenerational aspects of this, we've, in the last, since the Industrial Revolution, really, in the United States, we've had people who've been leaving their farms. But what's different about the way that 
there's the rapidity of the change or how rapid the change is at this point in time where industries are changing a number of times a lifetime. It's not like it's not like the father, the kid leaves when he comes of age and leaves the parents behind. It's the parents move. Everybody moves. Um, I just got word today that one of my brothers is moving down to Naples, Florida, which I'm, I'm very happy to hear. But I think the reason why he is is because my, my folks spend more and more time down here, more and more family moving down here. He wanted to be near them because he's got a young daughter and wife and, and wants that. The folks who I know who have traveled home to be, be where their family is is increasing when they start to have kids uh, as opposed to just doing their own thing, being in Washington, D.C. They're returning to Delaware or moving down to Florida or moving back to Massachusetts to be with parents, to have that extended family network to not be scrambling for a babysitter, to have a support network of people who love you and understand you and you know how to actually know how to raise kids. Uh, and those people are extremely happy. That you can do it in the city. You can raise uh, you can raise your family just as like a nuclear family, somewhat separated from the extended family. But it is a lot, lot, lot more difficult. And I think this slowdown from our lives maybe over the last two years slow down to some extent to a lot of the travel and the dining out and the things that are distractions, the parties, the things that keep a lot of young folks in these city jobs who've left really just distracted from the fact that they're missing their families. I, th- I think I- I've noticed a lot more people who are trying to make an, an effort to reach out, to move back, to get, to get neat closer to their families. And I think it might be just COVID putting things into stark relief. And you, you see the headlines today, in Santa Cruz, speaking of the breaking down and the invasion of privacy and the different things we're dealing with in modern life, now they're saying just in time for Thanksgiving, they want you to wear masks indoors in private gatherings mm. uh, in your home. Mm. This, there's, there is a conservative movement, especially over the last two years, to separate families, to say you can't be with your parents, to say you, to say that a husband and wife, who like a friend of mine just dealt with, weren't both died in the same floor, in the same ward, or the same hospital from the same disease, but weren't allowed to see each other and died alone. Because of it, this kind of things that these kind of open attacks on the family, I think, have woken up a lot of folks, maybe just subconsciously, starting to think, what am I doing? What what, What is important to me? I want to be with my parents. I want to be with my brothers. I want to be with my sisters. And I've loved being with my friends. And I've loved hosting people, especially since back in the day. It was kind of my fault because of how much we paid them that they weren't able to travel back to (laughs) South Dakota, wherever they're from, and then go home for Christmas. It would usually be one or the other. So I loved doing that, and we had our own community. But sometimes, especially this year, I was really feeling drawn back to just the tradition, um, just 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 the, the way I grew up. Well, it it's a it's a good point because one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Chris, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There, are, boomers probably don't appreciate the extent to which uh, millennials, in particular, Xers are one thing, but millennials in particular really were raised in this postmodern reality um, where all of the cultural institutions and uh, academic institutions, all of these things had been polluted by leftists and not in the same way that uh, that Gen Z is experiencing it, but I think intensely so. And so there are all of these lifestyle things that I actually wouldn't have considered political or controversial at all, um, you know, before starting to really think deeply and and aging myself, not that I'm that old, but, um, you know, getting into your later 20s, you really start to think about these things. Like it was so normalized to move away, normalized and celebrated to move away from your family for college um, and to have a a career in a city. There was something that was like very culturally celebrated and encouraged about that. But there are important things about family um, that, you know, these are 
Mary Eberstadt talks about how the sexual revolution made it actually easier for identity politics to divide us and alienate alienate us from each other because it uprooted the way that men and women uh, saw each other, that families operated, that families existed in the sort of social ecosystem in our communities. Um, and I think there's some real, real truth to that. And I think the lifestyles, you know, it's so normalized to just throw your parents in a home when they get to a particular age. And I'm not saying that that's a, a not the right choice for some people and not judging any individual cases. But I am saying that it used to be normalized that, you know, you opened your home to them because you lived close and they could take care of your children and your children could help take care of them. The family unit was uh, sort of this built in care network. Um, but now that people live so far apart and condition themselves to accept uh, technological uh, communication as closeness and connectivity, um, it, it does seem like we're losing so much. And Chris, I want to ask you how you think that contributes to secularism and, and rising secularism or even the threats now to the secular order that has been established as people are waking up to this. I think you're totally right. We've seen this throughout all of history where displacement causes a lack of religion and a breakdown of tradition, a breakdown in mores, a breakdown in family, a breakdown in, in, in connection. I mean, one of the reasons why the Jewish people are so famous throughout history is because they were one of the very few people that were managed to fully maintain throughout all, all of their different exiles and captured periods and uh, times when they're away from their Holy Land, able to somewhat maintain their connection with their God and with their families. But even they struggled a great deal and started to turn from that uh, throughout their history. This, this modern movement that we've seen, whether it's the feminism or leftism or whatever you want to call it, it started as like a cool liberation movement. You know, liberate, and you tell the the amount of women I know these days, or I talk to, who they don't they don't do any of the traditional women female things that were tr called traditional throughout history, whether it's cleaning or cooking, and they don't want to take care of the kids, but also don't want to do the different kind of masculine chores either. So I'm not exactly sure what their skill set is, but it starts off as maybe chores: liberate yourself from cooking, liberate yourself from sexual mores, uh, liberate yourself from hard labor if you're a man. Liberate yourself from marriage. It becomes liberate yourself from religion. It becomes liberate yourself from God. And you liberate yourself from God, you're just a prison. Uh, all of these different, all these different choices are really imprisoning. And you don't notice this in your twenties. Just like maybe people didn't notice it during COVID. Maybe I just didn't notice it well enough. You don't notice in your twenties that as your twenties are going by and people are going out and they're drinking and they're making more money and they're they're living their best life and posting on Instagram that. Life is somewhat going by rather quickly, and and a lot of those folks who may be doing the more boring life start to start to suddenly see looks like that's a much better life. That's a that's a that's a thing that you ought to have been pursuing the entire time. And then these people feel trapped, and it's not because they're bad. It's not because they're selfish. It's not because that woman said, "I want to not have kids," or "I want to turn." Uh, hit my mid 40s and not be married or my early 40s and not be married. I want to be I want to cause a panic in my life. It's because they were lied to. Uh, the sexual revolution devalued them. They were told you can you can have it all. The men were told the same thing. You don't have to settle down. You don't have to be responsible. Don't worry about it. Uh, you don't have to be near your family. You have to chase these goals. And don't worry, everything will work out. And it's like people, by the time people realize that they were lied to by an entire generation of, of counselors and folks that like most of them, I think, were actually trying to help but we're just completely misinformed and totally wrong. Uh, it's late. So it's, it's never, it's rarely too late for a lot of people. You can, you can get back to it, but it takes hard decisions. Having a conversation with a friend of mine just uh, last week, they were saying that 
they can't leave town because of their job, but they're miserable. They're, they're not living the life that they actually intended to live. They're not having the values that they intended to have. They're behind in where they wanted to be and starting a family. And it's like, why don't you leave? Well, it's because of my job. Well, what's more important? Mm-hmm. And that is really actually a difficult situation. I'm not even judging the guy for not making that call because he spent the last 15, 20 years building something here. And now he's realizing this is not what he wanted and he's unhappy. And it's, but it, it, it takes a real break and it takes kind of like with whether it's like alcoholism or drug addiction or anything else, it takes really hitting rock bottom, a moment of realization just to disconnect yourself from that rat race and return to return to the, the good life and return to the people who love you. Well, yeah, and it's an, it's an interesting thing as well, because our generation was conditioned to believe that sort of everyone can do anything and following your dream, you will, by following your <laughs> You're dream. You're a special like, snowflake. Yeah, you're special, and and like you you can, you should chase your dream because um, in this country you can do great things, and that's absolutely true. But what it does is devalue the, uh, the the worth of work that isn't some sort of fantasy um, of you know every job that doesn't involve making some sort of major daily change to the world um, is devalued. And if you're you know you you it's fine to work with your hands. In fact, it's it's probably better than a lot of the that we do, Chris. Um, and uh, it's having devalued all of that does tether people to these miserable jobs in cities. Um, in some cases, people aren't miserable, uh, but in other cases, they probably are more miserable than they would be if they had a manual labor that is more rewarding in many cases and more fulfilling. Um, and I like that you, you mentioned hitting rock bottom because I think to your earlier point, the pandemic did, want, did wake a lot of people up. And one of those sort of holiday traditions that always had some questioning, but was also just very much normalized and mainstreamed and celebrated was Black Friday. And I've always had complicated feelings on Black Friday. Um, it, it seems like on the one hand, it is a great American materialist tradition of uh, capitalism. Uh, but it, now that you know, we sort of see it through a fresh lens, um, as the world has changed, it looks like uh, the naked materialism of raw capitalism um, sort of like American psycho capitalism for the average consumer um, instead of you know using the the time that we have on holidays for good ends um, and for the right reasons and online shopping has obviously changed all of this but I wanted to ask you I'm going to read this quote from the target CEO um, he said what started as a temporary measure driven by the pandemic is now our new standard one that recognizes our ability to deliver on guests holiday wishes both within and well beyond store hours. So Target is no longer opening its stores on Thanksgiving days. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day, this is what uh, CNBC describes as, quote, making permanent a shift to the unofficial start of the holiday season that was suspended during the pandemic. So Target distribution and call centers, has well, they will have some staff on Thanksgiving Day, according to CNBC, but Target said as of Monday, its stores are going to remain closed. Really interesting, uh, because just a few years ago, this was it. This is where they made a huge, a huge chunk of their annual income. And now that they're able to do it online, there's less sort of requirement that people actually be in the stores. What do you make of this, Chris? I think it's excellent. And I, I, it's a, I think it's a lot of the online stuff can be a bad shift in our culture to a breakdown in our community where you can just shop from things uh, at your here as opposed at, at my table and, and 
I could, I could buy something in Amazon right now sitting here in Florida and have it shipped to my home from some factory and never have to interact with anyone and never actually have to interact with anyone along that measure, really, who's got a middle-class job, who's got their own business. And that is troubling, but there are also some good aspects of that, and that's liberating people from maybe being in the workplace. This is a good move by Target as far as I can see. I, and I, I've always respected the businesses that take that seriously, whether it's Chick-fil-A, closing on Sunday, which happens to be basically the one day a week I just suddenly crave Chick-fil-A for some reason. because uh, you're hungover, happens, man. like, routinely. <laughs> the, uh, or Costco. Uh, Costco has some pretty good holiday hours for its employees. They're where they, they cut them shorter. Uh, they, op- they, close, they close earlier or, or on major holidays. They're not open. Um, obviously, that can be frustrating occasionally to the consumer who suddenly realizes that he needs 10 sticks of butter or something like that, whatever ridiculous thing you need on Christmas Day. But it's good for the community. It's good for the workers. It's and there's some give and take going on right now with the changes in the American economy, the economy that COVID has pushed, and these ridiculous benefits have pushed in some level. But one of the things is more people demanding a work-life balance and satisfaction that is <clears throat> that's 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 better for them. Uh, and I think you were right to say that we were talking about the, the COVID being a real realization of this, where people, you know, you've got your life, you've got your friends, you've got the things you're doing. Well, suddenly you're just sitting in there in your apartment in Washington, D.C. or Boston or New York City, you you can't get to your family's home. You're, you're thinking, man, I wish I had someone to talk to. The work is closed. Happy hour is shut down. And you have to look at your life and look at your choices. Uh, that's good. On Black Friday, I do buy my shirts once a year on Black Friday, but I usually <laughs> do that online. And when I have gone out in the past, which I often regret, but in other words, when I have gone out in the past, I grab a close friend and we'll do a thing where it's like we go out and get something. And then we reward ourselves with a beer, even if we actually didn't find what we were looking for. And then we all yeah. meet up with the families at the Dubliner downtown, like his wife and kids and everyone. We all get together and have a big meal together. So we try to make it seem wholesome. But, yeah, it's probably raw consumerism in the end of the day. Well, the raw consumerism, of course, does have an upside in that it, it employs people. Um, and, you know, it, it boosts the bottom line of stores that employ people, of course. Um, but at the same time, I think it does raise this. And, and just so you know, Target will be open on Black Friday, I believe. They're just not doing the thing where they have that Black Friday creep where they open on Thanksgiving Day and Thanksgiving then becomes Black Friday, the day that it's we're so supposed weird. to be. I, it's so weird to me. I mean, I know that this is all just how you're raised, what's, what's shocking to you and what's not. Like, I remember uh, coming, being a daily caller meeting and Tucker coming in and saying, do you know that there are people who give lottery tickets to their kids in Christmas stockings? How disgusting is that? And I was like, I love getting lottery tickets in my Christmas stocking as a kid. It's totally normal. The kids just give them a scratch ticket, get busy in the corner for a while. Maybe it is trashy. But then when I heard some of my friends were like getting in line at 10 p.m. on Thanksgiving with their family to buy VCRs and TVs, VCRs, I'm dating myself. I was thinking, this is insane. What What are you doing? Now you're the bad person. So maybe I guess it's different traditions, but I like being close on Thanksgiving. I think, and we also should just get back in general to Thanksgiving being what it's actually meant to be, a holiday for Thanksgiving. People who are starving, people who had created the first self-governing community, folks who were basically were far from home, far from where they intended to be, far from Europe, not even near the Virginia colonies. They survived the winter. They met some new friends. They got together to celebrate the harvest and give thanks to God. Uh, I like the, I like, I'm hearing more and more these days. And I did when I, then at least than I noticed growing up, uh, churches talking about, and the priests talking about, don't forget Thanksgiving. Don't forget to give thanks to God. We're going to have a vigil. We're going to have an 8 a.m. mass, whatever, what have you. 
and it can be easy to get away from that with Thanksgiving with you know, the football and just the gluttony and uh, the chores and all the things you're doing, the cleaning, the cooking. It's like, hold on a second, just stop and slow it down for a second and remember that while this is not a religious holiday like Easter is or a religious holiday like Christmas is, it is a, it is a holiday to give thanks to God for, for our country and for our family and for what we have. Uh, even if it is not exactly what we planned, and even if it's even if it's different from where we set out for, what we have and what we have around us is is the cost for this holiday. Yeah, and that's why the Black Friday creep I think was always so disturbing because in Chick Fil A's case, they make this cost benefit analysis that like we're going to be closed on Sundays, and everybody objectively knows that Chick Fil A is still a generous and decent employer, and you can do both. Uh, but we increasingly have um, a a CEO and an executive class that's created a culture where doing only one has been normalized, um, and this has to do with secularization. Of course, we have a g- more greedy. Um, and more secular class of, of CEOs probably than we have ever had. And they're sort of Randian in that sense. Um, and it's not, we're not a country that really wants that. Maybe we've been conditioned to want that, but it's, it's anti-human in so many senses. We don't actually really want it. Um, and we've just sort of normalized it because that it's the sort of like uh, Gordon Gecko mentality. That's, that's try, try not going and shopping on, on, on Christmas or on Sundays. Try not making people work. It's hard. Uh, it's technically, I guess, a commandment, at least not to do work that's 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 not necessary, not to force that on others is something that you can draw from that. But I know one family, the McMorris's, who've started to do this themselves, where like, they don't go out to eat anymore. They don't go out to brunch anymore. They don't do any shopping anymore. You know, when you've got maybe some people Sundays are only day off, or maybe they've only got two days off and they're tied up with work at home. I, I understand it can be, it's, it's difficult. Like, this is my day to go to the hardware store. This was it. And that means you're making other people work. So some folks who I know have actively made that choice to just disconnect and say, not only am I not going to go to Chick-fil-A on Sunday, but I'm not going to make you work. Now, I like poking holes in it so you can't be too pious. I'm like, do you watch football? And a lot of people are working at that football channel. I get that to bring that channel to you to work in the stands, work in the tickets. Those players are working right now. It's, it's impossible to be too pure about or very difficult to be too pure about this, but it's an interesting challenge, especially in our modern world, of how much are we willing to give up uh, of our conveniences and what we've gotten used to in order to satisfy this actual need for rest and to not push that in people. And another caveat to this, I used to bartend on Sundays before, you know, Catholics have it easy. I can go to church sure at 5 did. with a beer <laughs> in me. But I used to bartend on Sundays uh, to pay the bills when reporting. And I didn't want anyone to boycott my Sunday. <laughs> I wanted you to come in. Buy drinks, buy food, hang out, leave a tip, hit the road. Back in the early 2000s, Blackberries revolutionized how we communicated. But it was not long before Steve Jobs and Apple thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all-new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. It seems standard now, but BlackBerry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game changer at the time. They were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone, so for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. Now, as the gold standard, every power player from DC to New York City to Los Angeles had a BlackBerry. 
But just when they thought they had the market cornered, in 2007, Apple launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. Now, I still have a vintage BlackBerry that I like to you know, hold in my hand sometime just for old time's sake. But this story, the story that Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry is telling is one that we can't lose to history because there are so much important trends and important information embedded in that battle. So listen to Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Yes. Um, and it's uh, what you're what you were talking about, I think, shows how our culture is designed actually to be secular. It makes it much more difficult to be a, a faithful believer than it does to be otherwise. Um, and you're right that the, the Sabbath is a commandment um, and we've drifted so far from understanding that, that it's actually totally different. Um, but and you can probably tell Chris is from Massachusetts, both by his accent and his attitude and also his knowledge of the the pilgrims <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and there's an important point there though which is that we have live we live materially more comfortable lives than just about anybody ever has on the face of the earth and we also enjoy more freedoms uh, than just about anybody ever has on the the face of the earth in modern history at least um, and it's amazing that we can't even pause to really have this like glass half full single day in this country where we appreciate our our blessings instead of um, being mired in grievances. The left attacks Thanksgiving every single year. Every single year we have to hear about uh, the, the glass half empty take, which there are some legitimate points to, uh, but it's every it's single year. It's such a blur because they attack so much. What are they, what's their complaint with the Thanksgiving again? Like just, uh, White supremacy. White supremacy. Oh, white supremacy. Yeah. Well, you know, the Indians attack first. <laughs> oh, man, Chris. I mean, the uh, hit back pretty hard, but they did not start that one. But yeah, so like, <laughs> but don't you think there's like the fact that we can't even have a, a glass half full day, one day, it's all anybody's asking for one day, uh, a gla one half glass half full day where we say we are so blessed and free and comfortable in this country and in this society uh, without corporate media running pieces about how it's, it's a, still a celebration of white supremacy and genocide. I remember at Old Toast, I was just going by my uh, a place I used to live at after college, and I was actually attending bar, and it was right next to the Russian embassy. And we were, you know, it was a good part of our lives. We were very rich, so of course we drank the cheapest vodka that we could find, 100 proof, <laughs> at nights to build a pain. My friend remembered listing a glass of, of vodka to the embassy and saying, vodka, joyless liquor for a joyless people. <laughs> and that was a good joke about the Russians. But they, the left's... The left blows them out of the water. You ever go to an actual Russian wedding or a Russian celebration? It's a really good time. There's a lot of great food. There's a lot of great people. There's a lot of smiles, a lot of happiness, making do even in bad times of what, what, what that country was going through with what they had. The left would, the modern American left takes the joy out of everything. They want to ban Dr. Seuss. They want to ban Thanksgiving. They want, Dr. Fauci doesn't want you to have Christmas. Dr. Tony, uh, Santa Cruz wants you to wear masks indoors. Uh, 
it's completely insane. And, and at the same time, they kind of push themselves as like liberating yourself, liberate yourself from from modern gender roles, liberate yourself from actual gender, uh, liberate yourself from church. It's and it's amazing how many folks just find themselves so completely lost and so completely depressed. I remember uh, I was dating a girl in college. My mother gave her a book called Eat drink love or something eat pray love you pray love yes there is yeah. a fair amount of drinking in it as well yeah i, re- I read the back of it and i was like what the hell are you doing <laughs> it's like the, <laughs> the self-enlightening tale of this woman who decides that she's just going to leave her family and go travel the world and just do her for a while and go find god at the top of some mountain in tibet i didn't read the book you might be able to tell but i read the back and i looked at my mother and said, what are you give me what are you giving this to my girlfriend for i was like no one why is this actually like a good idea it seems like a terrible idea <laughs> Did you read this book? Yes, I did. I, I read the book. <laughs> I, I, I've seen the movie. Um, <laughs> I didn't expect this Thanksgiving conversation to veer into a Bedford rant against Eat, Pray, Love. But it, <laughs> it is a very, very legitimate, uh, a very legitimate rant. And we could do an entire episode revisiting uh, all of the, the follies of Eat, Pray, Love. Because so my reading many. the back of the book was correct. Good. It I was, yes. It, <laughs> it's it's pro divorce um, in a very interesting sense um, in that this is her divorce is sort of framed as her liberation um, and it, yeah he's laughing uh, it, yes and uh, pro gluttony um, pro sort of hedonism um, and attached to this very empty I guess hollow sort of spirituality um, but it, it's actually kind of an interesting it's a very very American um, very like aughts american product um but it's true that we've gotten to this point where just the basics are not good enough right but people know that something's missing they know that something is empty right they're always like have you tried meditation what's that you just sit quietly and think about what you have and commune it's like you're talking about prayer like have you tried tried fasting yeah that's an an ancient christian and jewish idea fasting it's it's older than even of course in those religions they always come up with these new different things. Have you tried just taking a little bit of your time and just sitting there and being quiet and giving thanks? Yeah, that's called church. Right. But, that- but but people are like yearning. That, that's the thing is like there's there's something inside of them because we live in this anti-human society that is gnawing and saying you need more, you need fulfillment. And that's the thing with like the eat, pray, love divorce situation is a good example. It's like, well, maybe divorce made sense in, in your case because your expectations for what marriage is, you entered a marriage with totally incorrect expectations. So of course you're incompatible. Um, and I, that's not to say that you know people should be permissive of divorce. I'm just saying that the, our societal expectations are the consequences of it are going to look like this um, because this is, our society is designed so backwards, but it happens so quickly. It just, it happens so quickly. Um, and I'm curious for your take on that because you literally grew up in Massachusetts um, where there should have been a reverence for this particular holiday, I would imagine. Well, yeah, we, we spent, I feel like going to Massachusetts, we spent maybe like a quarter of our curriculum on the revolution. Uh, a quarter of our curriculum on the pilgrims and then half the curriculum in the rainforest for some reason. This was like woke light. Uh, also, we, we, we celebrated Kwanzaa. Uh, so, I mean, I, I didn't escape the full insanity of the education system, but it was something that we really dwelled on. Uh, we dress up as pilgrims when we were kids. We'd dress up in class. Some kids got to be the turkey. I don't recall ever having to deal with that one. <laughs> some kids dress up like Indians. I would probably get them canceled now. And then uh, in your weekends, you'd go to like old folks' homes and reenact Thanksgiving, which they thought was adorable. <laughs> uh, 
probably we must have been really small doing this. Uh, but there was, and it, it's it's just, it's the perfect kind of stay forward. It, it's you have the the change in the leaves and everything. And you've got the smells and uh, and and you got wild turkeys. Heck, those wild turkeys where my parents live half the year in Massachusetts, so uh, terrorizing the town every now and then. Uh, it, it just fit and. I'm not exactly sure what your question was. Though. <laughs> no, well, no, it was basically growing up in Massachusetts. I, I'm sure there was this like reverence for the holiday that should be nationwide, but I don't think is anymore. And you just reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you in particular, which is that y you are somebody who finds great satisfaction and pleasure in cooking. Um, I am not. <laughs> I microwave lean cuisines um, all you the time. You grew up with beef sticks and cheese curds. Why would you cook? Oh no! Exactly, a hundred percent. Why? What's the point uh, when and, you've got and endless beast? Yeah, yeah, you've got endless beef sticks and cheese curds. There's really no point. Uh, but uh, you do this all of the time, and you do it for your community, for your for your friends. Um, but you also do it, I think, very much for yourself. There's something that you find very, um, I don't know, relaxing. And a lot of people are going to be cooking, and for some people, it's going to be a nuisance. But why? Why do you think there's there's so much value and so much satisfaction to be found in using your own two hands to make a meal for your loved ones? I love cooking so much and I do find it relaxing. Like I'll come home late sometimes from work, nine or 10 o'clock and still just make a meal. And also I'm just bone tired because I like to do it, make a drink and then make a meal. And I love sharing that with other people. And I think a lot of folks who've got into cooking feel the exact same, uh, sharing that with people who appreciate it. It can be very difficult sometimes if you're just making dinner every night for a bunch of your kids who are just going to crush it down and then leave the table. Like that's less rewarding. But when you have your neighbors over, your friends over, family over, Loved ones, um, making something with your hands, using your own creati creativity, doing something that every time when they have a taste of that, they're like, this is good. Or hopefully, hopefully they're thinking it's good. Uh, <laughs> it's huge. And that's I, I was excited to, I kind of forced my way since this was like my triumphant return to family Thanksgiving. Kind of just forced <laughs> the taste that I'm doing the turkey and no one else's. Uh, this, there's too many generations here. They're going to they're gonna screw up too much. So I shipped a deep fryer down. Um, a, a Bunsen burner and the turkey frying kit. We need to try and find a propane tank tomorrow. I've got all the oil down here. And my parents are like, where are we going to store this? And so, I don't know. Give it to the Knights of Columbus or something. Like, they'll use it. We haven't had Thanksgiving together in eight or nine years. We're doing this together as a family like we used to. And we're going to brine the bird overnight, my dad and I, with a couple of beers and us. And then we'll, we'll inject it with butter and, and all the different kinds of spices the day of and drop it in. And everyone else will be doing their thing, bringing what they're good at doing, like uh, different sides or different desserts, like their favorite aspect of this holiday. And the cool thing is when you kind of break up the sides that way, people don't people bring what they want. People bring what they care about. People bring what they were raised with and what was part of their traditions. And you all get to share that. And it's much better than just signing like you're on chips, you're on dip. You know, people can figure these kind of things out. And I, I cannot wait uh, for this Thanksgiving just for that cooking and just for that doing it with, again with family and then and then sharing it although as my grandmother asked me how are we going to do gravy for frying this bird <laughs> she's like all up and all up in arms about this i'm like i don't know you have to figure this out you're gonna buy gravy i i i said this is gravy is now on you grandma mm. yeah Ooh, maybe she'll make her own uh, separate gravy turkey that'd be delicious
Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, Chris, uh, we can just close by uh, maybe you can uh, talk to us a little bit about why you think the cooking and the food is an important part of Thanksgiving, um, specifically of Thanksgiving and some of our more cherished holidays, because it, it is actually still, I think, a norm that people cook their own meals for their loved ones and for their family on Thanksgiving. The people who go out are still an outlier, and that's a very good thing. But why is it important that on this on Thanksgiving and on this holiday that's meant to um, engender a sense of gratitude, why is cooking and, and eating homemade food an important aspect of that? I think I think it should be done at home, and I think it should be done with people who care about each other, by people who care about each other. Uh, getting someone else to to cook your some I know some folks who are out there, whether for travel re- or work reasons or family reasons, aren't are going out to eat for Thanksgiving. You know, but there's something very different about gathering around the table when it wasn't just prepared by a chef who you're not going to see and then brought to you by a waiter who you're going to leave a tip for. Everybody contributing, whether they're cleaning or prepping or just keeping the kids busy, or some people don't contribute. They just sit in the corner and drink beer and eat shrimp. I can see you. Those, uh, But all those people coming together around the table, saying their prayers, um, and being together in one home, just one family or one friend unit, I think that's that is always going to be more special than the nicest restaurant night out you can you can ever have. Hmm. You know, it's important, I think, to I don't know, I, I think, Chris, it's all very helpful because these holidays can go by so reflexively um, and, and just so automatically. But we're in we've gone through two tough pandemic years that have accelerated a lot of uh, dangerous, um, anti-human, uncomfortable cultural trends. And I, I think people are really looking for more. And one place they can find them is in our traditions. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And as, as- I've, I've never looked forward to a Christmas uh, as much since I was a little kid as I did for the Christmas of 2020 at the end of that year. And uh, this is the first Thanksgiving I've been excited about, really excited about in years. Always been a little bit of a bah humbug, just trying to take care of other people. But these last couple of years especially have been a real reminder of what is actually important. Well, to our listeners, we are really grateful for you. We're we're thankful for you. We're thankful to our readers. Um, we know that you know it's a it's a difficult time to be political. Uh, we know that it's a difficult time to be Christian. Uh, we know it's a difficult time to be a person of faith in this country. Period. And uh, we so appreciate you listening, taking the time to read the site, taking the time to give us feedback. It, it means the world to us, um, and we're just very grateful for all of you, for your the the loyal listeners to the Federalist Radio Hour. Um, it, it means a lot. Chris, this was where you were supposed to insert your own uh, gratitude for the listeners. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) There you have it, folks. (laughs) Chris Bedford brimming with gratitude and clearly very excited to get back to the Florida sun. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Emily. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. God bless you. God bless all of our listeners. You have been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. You got me right where you